to put the microphone in, so I'm going to use the podium mic. Uh, and I'm going to take this moment to explain the podium mic. And this is targeted to no one, but uh, too often it's hard to hear people who speak up in the podium mic. So you got to bring it close to you because uh, what happens all the time is like it's down here and you can't hear me, right? So then they turn it up. We're playing this game. They turn it up to try to like so that you hear me and then it starts peaking and so then it starts making noise and then so then that you put the people put it farther and they're talking back here you can't hear me so just if, if, if you can't hear yourself through the just bring it closer to yourself we won't we won't have to play this game uh so uh first you, you might be thinking uh ben why are you talking about marriage that wasn't the reaction I was expecting, but that's great. Uh, or maybe it was. Uh, firstly, I, I just, well, there's a lot of reasons. Firstly, I, I must just like to shoot myself in the foot because this, this topic is so complicated and there's so many angles. And for me, who's more legalistic, you know, I want it in black and white. I want the answer pretty easy. There's like 30 different reasons for every single aspect of it. It was, oh my gosh, it's like you, you, I had my sermon done and then you find something else. It's like, well, I shouldn't say that. I should say it like this. Rewrite the whole thing. So just shoot myself on the foot there but another another fun thing that happened is last time when i preached last in july uh, i had a couple come up to me afterward and said it was their 51st wedding anniversary on the day that i preached <laughs> and i had been planning this uh, sermon somewhat and so then that was that was a really coincidence but more than it being just their 51st uh it was their 51st wedding anniversary from being married in this very church which was, I just thought that was crazy, and they had a photo, and it looked completely different, but so that was just some crazy coincidence, and so maybe in my mind, I used that to justify this topic, but uh, another reason, uh, a lot of friends and family are quickly becoming that age where everyone's getting married. It seems like I'm starting to know people who are getting married. There are a lot of people in my circle and serious relationships, and even a few who have gotten married are engaged, so I thought it would be uh, beneficial to address this from that perspective. And lastly, I, th I believe that I, along with other people who are considering marriage or dating, I think it's important for us to understand this. So I think it's a serious topic worth learning about. So, and, and who wouldn't want to learn about marriage? I mean, what other life decisions gives you such great benefits as lower taxes, better health insurance options, <laughs> and being statistically more likely to survive major surgeries, being statistically more likely to survive cancer, and uh, somehow having a better average sleep? So... I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it would be, you know, it, there's, there's some benefits. So, uh, before we, we begin, uh, too deep into this, I'd like to pray. Dear God, thanks for us being able to gather here and to worship you and to learn more about you. Uh, be with us as we dive into your word and these, uh, related commentaries that we gain no, more knowledge into your intent, uh, of the text and your intent, uh, for what you want us to do with our lives. Help us to gain knowledge, uh, and that we would ultimately use these ideas in our relationships and lives to further living for you. In your name, I pray. Amen. So marriage is an interesting concept. It's an interesting topic. It's an interesting creation. A society would hold it up as just a process, a legal binding together. Some of society would argue that it's all-inclusive, that it can be however many people, as many times as you want, with whomever you want. Some people despise biblical marriage uh, due to its view on uh, each gender's duty. And some Christians would even downplay or ignore uh, these duties altogether. Some Christians, especially young ones, see marriage as a goal to a solution, uh, as a goal or a solution to their problems. Some might see it as a door to sex and sexual pleasure, pleasures. Others might see it as a step to parenthood. 
And arguably, the church puts a heavy emphasis and pressure on marriage as a logical step in faith, which can be very confusing to those growing up in the, with that unspoken pressure, expectation, and maybe even quiet judgment to get married. But what's even more curious is what Christ says. Christ says, quote, Marriage is for people here on earth, but there is an age to come. Those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given marriage. I can click my own slides. So, and that's in Luke 20, 35. So today, I take the brave step as a man who's never been in a relationship to ask the relevant question, should I or you get married? Now, hopefully, I don't end any marriages. Uh, I don't think I'm smart enough to do that, but I just might be dumb enough to. Uh, so let's embark on this journey of me trying to figure this all out. Uh, so let's give some context to that verse Luke, in Luke 20. The Sadducees give an example to Jesus uh, of a woman who has had many husbands. Now, uh, this woman married a guy. Guy dies. And then the brother marries the wife. That would have been how it would have been done. Jewish law. Jewish law. So the, the woman has righteously had many husbands. Righteously in the eyes of God. So the Sadducees that scripture say don't believe in the resurrection... So they're kind of joking. They're, they're making fun of Jesus. They're like, well, so in this hypothetical, right, if there was a resurrection, how would the wife, you know, whose wife would, you know, whose wife would she be? So Jesus, uh, Jesus, this is what he says in, uh, in Luke, Luke 20, 34 through 35. He says, marriage is for people here on earth, but there's an age to come. Those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given marriage. And he repeats this in Matthew 22. And so, you know, to me, who's trying to figure this out, it, it's, it seems profound at, at first glance. God created marriage. It's one of the first things he does with humans. He gives Eve to Adam. He ordains the first marriage. So why would God not continue in heaven? Why would God create it in the first place? Why get married if there's no marriage in heaven? And so I think the first step to figure this out, especially, is, is to figure out what marriage is, especially biblically. So I... I I'll, look at this as like some prerequisites. And so in thinking of this, I was thinking of like, you know, when you enter into a contract or, you know, you get a new phone and it pops up with all those things you have to sign, you have to scroll through it. I agree and hit, you know, continue on. So it's a lot like those EULAs or those terms and conditions. You know, there are terms and stuff you have to accept before you enter into a marriage. These are these prerequisites. God gave each party a role, God, female and male. God created this contract, so if you want to sign into the contract of marriage, you have to agree. Obviously, the first requirement, which is posed in Genesis, is for it to be one man and one woman. And although that's argued in society, I think that's very clear biblically. So I won't spend too much time on it. But those people also have responsibilities. So in this, in this contract of marriage, the wife must... Submit to their husbands, that's Ephesians 5.22, 1 Peter 3.1. Respect your husband, Ephesians 5.33. Disregard outwardly beauty, 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Seek the, quote, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, 1 Peter 3.4. Help your husband, Genesis 2.18. Husbands must be the head of, their, of his wife, Ephesians 5.23 and Ephesians 6.4, uh, which says to bring up children. Ephesians 6.2-3 says children to honor their uh, father and mother, so... The husband oversees the whole family. To love your wives, Ephesians 5.25, which later implies sacrificing your life in love. And Colossians 3.19, love your wife as you do your body, Ephesians 5.28. Leave your father and mother, Ephesians 5.31, which actually references Genesis 2.24.
to honor your wife, 1 Peter 3.7, treat your wife with understanding. 1 Peter 3.7 and Colossians 3.19 says, don't be harsh with your wife. And to provide for them, 1 1 Timothy uh, 5.8 says that husbands should provide for their household. They're everyone, their relatives, especially their household. So that would also imply children and wives and everything like that. Uh, And then you could also imply that men should protect their wives, being that they were assigned to be in charge of creation in Genesis uh, and that they are to treat your wife like your body. I mean, you wouldn't want someone to stab your body, so you probably won't want someone to stab your wife. So protect your wife, protect your body. Uh, and to serve your wives as Christ did the church, washing a feet and ultimately dying. And then both, actually, the Bible provides both need to fill each other's needs. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 3. Not leave each other, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. And then I would probably just throw all other Christian characteristics, which we'll get more into that, how that fits in. But you know, to be equally yoked, we'll talk about later, uh, you would follow and obey all other Christian uh, commandments, such as being trustworthy, compassionate, humble, serving, loving, etc., and then God, God's not really, he doesn't really put his part of the contract very clearly in scripture, at least not what I could find. Oh, I should also say that I may have missed one. So if I, if I missed one, that's my bad. Uh, but those were the ones I could find quickly. But so God's not super clear, but it, I mean, it's clear that God created the people in the marriage, created the world for the marriage to take place, created them compatible to be married, created the outline for marriage, and then God created the means of unification with the marriage. So God is the whole foundation in history on which the marriage is built. Uh, so God does a lot, even if it's not clearly said, God did this for marriage in the Bible. And I, and I said compatibility. And so, and that, you know, that made me think, okay, what does the Bible say about compatibility? Because oftentimes people seeking a relationship might consider that. I mean, there's whole apps and algorithms uh, designed to, you know, do we both like tennis? Do we both like this? Do we both eat seafood kind of thing? So uh, it was like, what, you know, and you might be familiar with the question, is she the right one for me? Uh, and so in thinking of that, I was doing a lot of research. Uh, it's, it's weird because in biblical discussions, uh, it's not, they don't talk about it very often. The concept of compatibility hardly ever comes up. And I think it's because compatibility might be a bit overemphasized, at least by society, because we live in a world of selfishness and sin. No one is 100% compatible with you, and the only match made in heaven is Christ. So, but that's not to say, I mean, in, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, do not team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? And the ESV translate it, translates it, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So we, I, we may know what a yoke is. Uh, and I like this picture because they, they put it, point an arrow at it, like as if we would think something else was the yoke in the picture. But so that's what a yoke is, what the arrow's pointing at. Uh, they, it would have been used to harness two animals together so in real life, you would, you would probably, you know, yoke two animals that were similar, the same size, same characteristics, same animal type. Like you're not going to yoke like uh, a flamingo with like an elephant like that. They're not going to do anything. Um, and I feel like you could kind of take that analogy and apply it to like human characteristics, not like size. Like it's like, oh, can't marry her. She's three inches shorter than me kind of thing. But more like personality and hobbies and interests. And obviously the yoke is is referring to Christians should partner up with Christians, which is directly applicable to marriage. You can't have someone who's very knowledge, knowledgeable and passionate with someone who knows nothing. They will drag the knowledgeable person down, just like an ox and a yoke. Both have to pull their own weight. One cannot pull more than the other, otherwise you'll just go in circles. So even though compatibility is not discussed in the Bible, at least not in the way we would see it, uh, you know how we would know it and how society has used it in the terms of a relationship, 
even though that's not discussed, finding someone who is equally yoked, not only in the fact that you're both Christians and on the same spiritual level, but which is required, uh, but that you are both similar in other ways would likely help your marriage be more successful. But even still, compatibility isn't in the Bible. And in fact, some of society, unknowingly or not, uh, would be using compatibility selfishly. Uh, that question that I posed, you know, is she the right one for me, is a self-focused question. Is she the right one for me? I'm worried about myself. And the Bible's clear to giving blessings to those who would give rather than receive, Acts 20, 35, and commands us not to be selfish, Philippians 2, 3. So maybe the better question would be, how can I be the right one for her? Being compatible with your potential spouse is not a biblical prerequisite. The only requirement that's important is that you are equally yoked. God's purpose of marriage isn't self-fulfilling. God has a greater purpose for marriage, a purpose of symbolism, companionship, intimacy, social foundations, and obedience. And so those, those are what I kind of have ended up with as these main purposes of marriage. And so we're going to go over them real quick. Uh, of course, symbolism, that, that's pretty obvious. It's, it's kind of what everyone says. It's what you can find on the internet. Marriage, the most intimate of human unions, marriage offers a ubiquitous but temporary image of his final eternal relationship with his redeemed people in, his new, in the new heaven and the new earth. <laughs> and this whole idea of Jesus takes the church as his bride comes from scriptures, such as when Paul reveals this in Ephesians 5. Paul talks about how humans should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and husbands should love their wives as the Christ loved the church, and be willing to do as Christ and sacrifice his life for the for his bride. Then I like what Paul says in verse 31, Ephesians 5, 31, 32. Says, as scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but is an allusion to the way Christ and the church are one. I like how Paul Paul's like, you may not see this, but all this stuff I said about marriage is ultimately an allusion of Christ, an il, il, not illusion, illustration, maybe I did, I typed illusion, of Christ and the church. And, and a commentary explains this as Paul is taking that verse from Genesis and is explaining that although it's obviously applicable to marriage, God's unification of man and woman in Genesis was also an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So here's uh, something to think about that I didn't actually have an answer to but was thinking, uh, so feel free to do some research at home, is this, can we take what, because that's kind of what Paul does. He's like, okay, I'm saying all these things, husband is wives, and he says, you can kind of swap those out for church and Christ. So can we do that with what Peter says? In First Peter 3, he talks about how wives should not be concerned with outwardly beauty, avoiding fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothing. Instead, a wife should focus on internal beauty. But can we take what Peter says, where Peter says wives, and replace it with the church? And if so, can we replace husbands with Jesus Christ? Is it still applicable? You know, should the church avoid fancy buildings, fancy light shows, popular clothes, and other stuff that are so commonplace in the new age modern church culture? I couldn't find a solid answer. I, you know, I didn't. So I challenge you to uh, figure that out for yourself. But so my next purpose uh, that I thought about was uh, companionship. And that's all the way in Genesis it talks about that. And says, it is not good, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is right for him. So God, God clearly knew what, hap what happens when men are alone for too long. Uh, and I, I have a few stories and videos I could show. And I'm sure the men on the trip probably have a lot too. But to keep the people who throw snaps at each other and who do donuts and low water bridges, keep them, keep them innocent. I won't show any videos or name any names. But 
So God clearly made marriage to be beneficial in that way. He made marriage so that two individuals could create a better whole. And in Ecclesiastes, it continues. It says two people are better off than one for one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other person can reach out and help. But if someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two standing back to back but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three is even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. In this passage, it's clear it's beneficial to have a partner. Two times in the Bible, Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs. This was likely due to Jewish law about needing two witnesses. However, it's not hard to think of the benefit of having two people working together. A well-oiled team, be it marriage or just working with someone, would hopefully lead to a better decisions, more effective work, better accountability, and better security. Traveling, teaching, and working are clearly better with teams. And for marriages, God clearly designed marriage to be a team of one man and one woman. And then when you invite God into your marriage, as symbolized by the triple braided cord, you become an even stronger team, a team that is perfectly designed to relate to people and evangelize, a team that is truly in the image of God, you know, united three as one, the Trinity and a marriage man, woman, God. And of course, it's hard to talk about marital companionship without talking about the idea of intimacy. And so if you were to ask, why should I get married uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul would tell you, uh, it's because, the, you know, you, you should be married because, well, let me see what it says. Yeah, because there is so much temptation to sexual immorality, people should be married. For it is better to do that than burn with lust. Paul also says married people shouldn't deprive each other of their sexual intimacy. And Solomon writes about wives saying they should captivate, ESV translates, intoxicate their husbands. That's Proverbs 5.19. And it's not hard to see where Solomon stands taking into account he wrote that Ecclesiastes verse in the whole book of Song of Solomon. Marriage clearly has characteristics of intimacy. And to continue the symbolism, it's fair to, I think it's fair to expect that our unification in heaven, like marriage, will be one of a unified intimacy with God as his, the bride, the church, unites with Christ. That's not to say this intimacy will be sexual in any way. C.S. Lewis has a great quote regarding that in his book, Miracles. And in fact, any speculation on what marriage in heaven would look like and its effects and applications would seem senseless since our mortal minds cannot conceptualize such a divine institution. But the fact of overwhelming joy, happiness, and passion of the believers in heaven is plastered all over the Bible. I mean, just simply put in uh, Psalms, it says, You make known to me the path of light. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. In heaven there will be no need for interpersonal intimacy, as we will all be with God. There will be fullness of joy for pleasures forevermore, and our heart's desires. It'll be the most intimate thing we will ever experience. Marriage offers a very intimate, yet comparatively small, when looking at it, when looking at what's yet to come and will be fulfilled in heaven. So, my next purpose, which is, uh, is this, how important marriage is in, uh, in the foundation of society, and in, uh, I didn't mean to click over to the next one, in how it is a foundation for families. God built everything he did on marriage. God populated the world with marriage, and God brought a savior through marriage. God could have easily spoken everyone into existence, and just everyone's everywhere, and he could have easily just introduced the savior. 
But no, the process of birth that is brought from a family was God's foundation for everything. And it's not hard to find numbers that show the importance of marriage. One video I watched claimed that every major society that fell from the inside, Rome, Greece, all the other ones I couldn't remember, uh, slowly lost the sanctity of marriage before their collapse. Two-thirds of cohabitating parents split up before their child reaches the age 12, whereas married couples are about one-third, and that's all married couples that is, you know, Christian or not. And data clearly shows how important having two parents are together in the, in, for childhood development. Married parents usually have higher educational progress, which probably helps contribute to the fact that, quote, married fathers earn more on their own than the average cohabiting couple with a joint biological child earns between both parents, and that's by a factor of four grand. Kids who are separated, by, separated from both parents at the age of 15 are 3.6 times more likely to commit a violent crime. Kids separated from fathers are two times more likely, and separated from mothers is 2.2 times. Marriage is a critical foundation of society because it's a critical foundation of the development for, of our future citizens, leaders, and soldiers. It's clear God emphasizes marriage because it's important for childhood development, which directly affects the future of society. Uh, and I want to kind of side note over onto what the Bible says about divorce. So in, uh, and we'll be reading here out in Mark 10, uh, 1 through 12, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna show the first verse and I'll summarize the rest. But I think this is this is so cool how I like which so this is another side note, a side note to the side note of how I just think it's so cool when scripture does stuff like this. In the first verse, it's just something you would probably skip over when reading, is is they just say where Jesus is at. Here's the location of Jesus. It's just one little verse goes on to the actual topic, but I think the inclusion the location was included for a reason. According to Josephus, a Jewish scholar, John the Baptist would have been arrested in this area. And John the Baptist would have been arrested for publicly rebuking Herod and him taking his brother's wife. That's in Matthew 14. So one commentary thinks that the Pharisees, they were being little sneaky boys, and they were trying to get Jesus for the same thing, the same way that John was stopped, trying to get Jesus to say similar things in the same area. But Jesus, he is, and I love when he does it because he's way too smart for those with Pharisees. Uh, so they asked Jesus about divorce. You know, what do you say about divorce? Is divorce okay? And Jesus goes, you guys know the, you know, you guys know the law of Moses. You know, the law of Moses permitted divorce only if a man has, quote, discovered something wrong with her. And, of course, a popular rabbi uh, at the day said you could divorce uh, someone for anything, be it talking too loud or just burning supper. So Jesus was setting the record straight. He said, let no one separate, no, no one split apart what God has joined together. Marriage is created by God and is a covenant that includes God. If God doesn't say you're divorced, you're not, and you've committed adultery if you've taken another spouse. And Jesus is maybe a bit more clear about this. Matthew 9, 19, he says, And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. So the only way to divorce is if there's sexual immorality inside the marriage. And Paul adds to this in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15, saying that divorce is just not a good option. He says, But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A, way, a wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him, and the husband must not leave the wife. So Paul's like, you know, don't divorce or re and remarry. Instead, reconcile and heal. Even if you are married, and this is what Paul says, even if you're married and your spouse is an unbeliever, you should stay married. Interestingly, Paul seems to say this in part for the children of the marriage. Except, Paul says, if the unbeliever leaves, you can remarry. Of course, this doesn't mean you can just marry whoever you want to. Uh, remember 2 Corinthians 6, don't be unequally yoked. 
And actually, in that verse in Mark, where you know, yet it actually Jesus actually uses the word for yoked. He says, "Therefore, what God has yoked together, let no man separate." And so, my my final purpose here is the eternal purpose uh, of what I would call the eternal purpose of marriage. Is that's just obedience. And so, we're going to start in uh, what commentaries would say most people regard as one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. Uh, so uh, again, I just like shoot myself in the foot, but, uh, and I'll read it. Uh, but women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Now the NSVB translate this, translates this as, but women will be preserved through childbirth. However, many Christians obviously don't survive childbirth. That would seem to not be a good translation. And the Greek word that they use almost always refers um, and always refers to spiritual salvation elsewhere in the pastoral epistles. One commentary thinks childbearing uh, is a figure of speech referring to a woman's role in the home. So if they focus on their duties in the home, they will not be tempted by Satan. Another thinks it could be referring to how women leave a legacy through their children. But I think the one that's most likely is proposed by a commentary that concludes that this is referring to how women throughout history redeemed by redeemed their original transgression talked about in verse 14 of that of that chapter and also obviously referring to the genesis of eve through the birth they redeemed their original transgression through the birthing of a savior that crushed the head of satan through a long line of married men and women obeying what god called them to do adam and eve populating the earth abraham and sarah leaving Ur, joseph taking mary to be his wife and going to bethlehem god brought salvation and love to those people and inevitably the world but God is not done calling people to do things. We are still called to fill the world, but we're also called to make disciples of the world. And that's Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 19, you know, the great uh, commission, along with so many other commandments. Through marriage, we can better continue God's kingdom and follow our calling. Some, like Paul, are called to be single. Some are called to take a spouse, and even some are called to have children. I think marriage is a tool we as Christians can use to, to help further our callings and commandments from Scripture. Jesus and his disciples out in pairs, and Ecclesiastes 4 talks about two being better than one. We are clearly called to teach and disciple others. A pair of people would be more influential and stronger in discipleship. <laughs> so ultimately, marriage is a God-created institution between a man and a woman designed to bring both closer to God through their marriage. It's the closest concept we have to the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. While here on earth, marriage offers righteous a righteous outlook outlet for intimacy, a healthy means for procreation, a valuable institution of society designed for raising kids, and a vital tool for obedience to God. But once we get to heaven, every benefit and purpose of marriage will be superseded by God in heaven. Our bodies and minds are going to be transformed into spiritual adaptations that lack weakness and sin that our earthly bodies have. So every benefit of marriage, biological, psychological, emotional, physical, etc., will be negated in heaven. Heaven will have no purpose for marriage. We will have no desire for physical pleasure. We will have no need for reproduction. We will be perfectly obedient to God with the eradication of sin, and we won't need any benefit of security or companionship. All of it's no longer necessary, as the alternatives are indescribably and incomprehensibly better than what we currently experience. So, kind of circling back to my question, should you or should I get married? Well, it depends. If you are spiritually ready and emotionally able to, and it would help you, sure. If you don't need to be married, take Paul's advice and live single. 
Marriage is not some joke thrown away when we get to heaven. Marriage is a serious thing that God created. It's a significant decision God uses as a foundation of society. To the, many, to the people not married, consider these purposes and requirements I laid out. I believe these things I said to be the foundation of a marriage and any partner of any, of any, how did I write this? Lost my part. Any partner of a good marriage would probably agree a good foundation is critical. Married people, talk to the young people and correct what I got wrong. Uh, if anything is made clear in the last 30 minutes, it's that marriage is serious and not something to jump, to just jump into. God designed it for your benefit, but his glory. It's not a selfish thing where you try to get something for yourself. It's not a hyper-romantic fever dream where everything has a pink vignette. It's serious with trials and conflicts, with divorce not being an option. It's a commitment. So to the church, my friends, and myself, let's take it seriously. Thanks. Uh, and I'll pray. Uh, dear God, thanks for your institution of marriage. Uh, help us to take it seriously. Help us to have the wisdom to uh, apply it to our lives. Help us to see marriage how you see it. Help us to see the instructions you give us uh, in the Bible how you see it. And help us to strive to ultimately do your will and to obey our calling you have for our lives. Amen.